0: Well, it's been six weeks since I finished Romans chapter 13. To be exact, it was back in, on, on November 27th of last year. So, this morning, before I start chapter 14 of Romans, I would like to address the subject of legalism and license in the church. Now, this message is not directly related to Romans 14, indirectly related but I think it's an important enough issue to spend a little time on before we start on Romans 14. Now, if you do not know what the terms legalism and license mean, I will define them at the start. The Bible never uses the term legalism, but provides examples of it. Many of the Pharisees were legalists and some in the church of Galatia Probably the majority of it were guilty of it. And Paul called them foolish for doing so. So for the point of this discussion, there are two types of legalism that we should be aware of. The first is the most dangerous. And that would be legalism as applied to salvation. I call this group Salvation Legalists. Let me put a point number one here on the screen for you. Legalism exists when people attempt to secure righteousness in God's sight by good works and obedience to the law or other rules and commandments. It doesn't have to be necessarily the Mosaic law. But if you would turn just to start in, in Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15 and the first verse. Acts 15 is a good case study on legalism. But we're just going to look at the first verse. And certain men, which came down from Judea, taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. So this fits just what I said. Legalism exists when people attempt to secure righteousness in God's sight by works and obedience to the law or other rules and commandments. Except you be circumcised, you cannot be saved. C.J. Williams said that legalism is a contortion of the true gospel, whereby a person tries to earn or maintain his salvation or appear righteous in the eyes of men by keeping and often often adding to the law of God. Now, Now look in Romans Chapter eleven Romans chapter eleven because we've we've already touched on this in many places actually in our study in Romans. But pertaining to salvation, look at the sixth verse. Where Paul says, if by grace, what does grace mean? It means unmerited favor, right? It's a free gift. It's not something you can work for. So if salvation is by grace, then it is no more of works. They're absolutely contrary, one to the other And he clarifies this. Otherwise, grace, unmerited favor, is is no more unmerited favor. It's no more grace. But if it be of works, then it's no more grace. You're getting paid for it. It's not free. Otherwise, work is no more work. It's something else. So legalism says God will love, love us if we conform to all that he commands. The gospel says that God will transform us into the image of Christ because he loves us. So we're saved and then we're being transformed continuously. If you're in Romans, you can go back to Romans 8 and just look at verse 29 for a moment. And you can see God's purpose in saving us. Romans 8, 29, for whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate to what? To be conformed to the image of his son, to be Christ-like, so that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, under grace, we live to please God. We're, we're not living to earn something that is already ours, a right standing with God on the basis of having been justified by what? Faith alone in what? In Jesus Christ, in, in Christ's finished work of, of redemption which he accomplished on the cross. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. Paul writes, Furthermore, then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk, and notice what he says, to please God. God wants every believer to have a walk, that means a manner of life, that is pleasing to him. So ye would abound, What? more and more we we should expect growth in the life of christians god expects us to grow for you know what commandments we gave you by the lord jesus and the last part of that verse three for this is the will of god even your what sanctification what is sanctification it's growth in holiness it's growth in in christ likeness and that's a lifelong process so if you are wondering about what the will of God is for your life, it's clearly mentioned here. We could talk about other other aspects of God's will. But certainly this is this is fundamental. It's your sanctification, it's your growth in Christ likeness. Now I want to give you a couple prime examples of legalism in salvation. The first one is what I call the impossible gospel of Mormonism. 2 Nephi twenty five twenty three. This is from the Book of Mormon, not your Bible, so don't go looking for it. <laughs> for we labor diligently to write, to persuade our children and also our brethren to believe in Christ and to be reconciled to God. Well, that's a good idea, right? Everybody believe in God, be reconciled to God. But look what they do at the latter part of this. For we know that it is by grace. What's grace? Unmerited favor. It's not works. For we know that it is by grace that we are saved. What does that say? After all that we can do. Mutually exclusive. Impossibility. That's the impossible gospel of Mormonism. So secondly, I want to mention to you this morning the no assurance gospel of Roman Catholicism. Good news without assurance is not good news at all, right? So this is from the Council of Trent's Decree on Justification, 6th Session, 1547, Canon 30. By the way, this has not been rescinded. Vatican II did not change this. They affirmed everything that the Council of Trent said. And it claims that the grace of justification is inadequate, for the full remission of guilt. So here's the statement. It reads, If anyone says that after the reception of the grace of justification, which in Roman Catholicism occurs when a baby is baptized, that's the initial entrance into the grace of justification, if they say that the guilt is so remitted and the debt of eternal punishment, so blotted out to every repentant sinner, that no debt of temporal punishment remains to be discharged either in this world or in purgatory, before the gates of heaven can be opened, let him be anathema. Damned. So what they're saying is there are things that you must do. In Roman Catholicism, salvation isn't, you're not justified by faith alone in Christ. You're justified as a process, a lifelong process. So in Catholicism, and believe me, I know Roman Catholicism, having spent many years there and having spent much time studying Roman Catholicism involved in apologetics ministries to Roman Catholics in Catholic belief one must enter into a state of grace through baptism and after that is done, a Catholic goes through life and if they commit if they commit any less serious sins, what they call venial sins like little white lies and so forth. They may deal with those things through sorrow, prayer, works of charity, and abstinence, reception of Holy Communion. That's from the Fundamentals of Catholic Dogma by Ludwig Ott. So you have these venial sins, and the goal is to die uh, in a place where you don't die with unconfessed mortal sin, which is a grievous sin on your soul, because then you would be condemned but you still have to pay off that debt. It's a works religion. So to a Catholic, salvation is a lifelong process. You can fall out of justification. You have to go and confess your sins to a duly authorized priest. Do the penance to to be back in right standing with God. So to a Catholic, salvation is a lifelong process which must be worked out through human achievement. Human achievement. Well, Paul had a lot to say about that. In the book of Galatians, he said, for instance, Galatians two sixteen, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law or any other kind of works. For by the works of the law shall no what flesh be justified. So works works don't add or they're not, they're not necessary for our salvation except the work that Christ has done. Works follow, follow salvation. Galatians 3.1, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who has put a spell on you? It was the false teachers, the, the Judaizers that came in. Who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ has been evidently set forth, crucified among you? And then he goes on in Galatians 3.24, because they were so confused about the law, they were trying to make, the Judaizers were saying, unless you be circumcised, you can't be saved. He says in Galatians 3.24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster. That's a child trainer, a tutor, to bring us to Christ. It was never meant to save anyone, that we might be justified by what? By faith. But after that faith is come, We are no longer under a schoolmaster. We're no longer under the law and the requirements of the law that they many believe were necessary for salvation, although God never never intended it to be that way. For you are all the children of God by faith in what? In Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.24. No other way, right? But by faith. So you have the the uh, impossible gospel of Mormonism, you have the no assurance gospel of Roman Catholicism, and then you have the false gospel of the Church of Christ. And here's what they say. Baptism Baptism is essential to salvation because it is when one's sins are forgiven, when one receives the Holy Spirit, when one dies to sin, when one starts a new life, And when one becomes a child of God in Christ. That's not the true gospel. That's not the gospel that the Apostle Paul preached. I can give you many other examples of salvation legalists. The world is full of them. You know, there are only two types of people in the world. Do-done people. Those who believe that what? Jesus did it all? The done people? And uh, we we receive that free gift of salvation by faith. Or the do-people. The people who are always doing and doing doing, trying to achieve a right standing with God. All right, secondly, legalism and sanctification, what we might call sanctification legalists. And this ties in with the idea of Christian liberty and license, which we'll be speaking about. But Fred Malone, Baptist preacher, says the doctrine of Christian liberty flows out of the doctrine of Christian freedom. Freedom in Christ includes not only freedom from the law as a covenant, because we're not under the old covenant, we're under the new covenant, but it includes freedom from the domination of sin and Satan, but also freedom from the domination of men over the conscience of the Christian. And here's where we need to be real careful. What is our conscience? Our conscience, the conscience, according to Proverbs, is the the candle of the soul. And I've often said it's not a guide that you can trust. It's not a reliable guide. That's why people believe all kinds of different things and their conscience is clear. You can have serial killers and their conscience is clear. So the conscience is not a guide that you can trust apart from the knowledge that comes from diligent study of God's word. So what I'm saying is your conscience in your fallen condition, is unreliable. It has to be informed by the word of God. You can make some very bad decisions based on your conscience, how you feel about it. Men can also manipulate you and deceive you and have control over your conscience and your mind. The cults are just notorious for doing this. So Romans 14, when we get there, we'll deal with the weaker and the stronger brother. The weaker brother has a conscience that would not allow him to do certain things, like eat meat, which the word of God does not forbid. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about the weaker and the stronger Christian in, in uh, Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. So I put this point down here for you. Legalism in the life of a Christian is present when they add extra biblical requirements that are derived from traditions or teachings of men in order to live what they believe is a life most pleasing to God. Now, who does, who, which of us does not want to live a life that is pleasing to God? We all do. That's what we read in First Thessalonians. I mean, that's our aspiration. That's our goal. The problem is sometimes people will put these extra things on you that you must do in order to live that kind of a life. So this elevates human preferences to the level of biblical absolutes. And the subtle danger of a legalistic mindset is the desire to appear holy before men. And they try to get other Christians to live up to their standards and beliefs. Legalistic Christians are not content living under rules, which may have no biblical basis. They want others to live by them too. And they try to make others feel guilty if they don't adopt those rules. Pastors can do this from the pulpit. They can go beyond the scriptures in what they expect from the people that they minister to. Now let me clarify that. Expectations and standards are not wrong in and of themselves i expect you to be in church to worship god on sunday morning the leadership expects you to do that we expect you to pray we expect you to do you know your your your, your personal time we have expectations and we clearly have standards so expectations and standards are not wrong if they are biblical the problem is when they go beyond the scripture Matthew chapter 11 and verse 28. What did Jesus say? Because Jesus was a rabbi. Was he not? Teacher? He had his own disciples, his own Talmudim. School of disciples following him. He wasn't the only rabbi uh, with, with followers in that day. What did he say in Matthew eleven twenty-eight? Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? I'll give you burdens. I'll give you more, more, more things to bear. I will give you rest. And then he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, the yoke that Jesus was referring to, you get the idea of of, an oxen with a yoke on it and having to pull this heavy load. The yoke in Jesus' day was the rabbi's interpretation of the law. That's what the yoke was. And it could add a lot of burdens on a person which were impossible to keep. Extra-biblical burdens. So the yoke became very heavy. And they were laboring to carry all those extra biblical burdens. And Jesus says, come to me. I'll give you rest. I'll give you rest. My my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And if you want to know what Jesus thought of the Pharisees' burdens, just read Matthew chapter 23. It's a scathing indictment of Pharisaical religion. I'll give you a sample. Matthew 23, 1. Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. They were the teachers of the law. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do ye not after their works, for they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne. And they they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. So they were hypocrites. They would say, do this, do that, but they didn't do those things. So they took the word of God, the law of God, and the commandments of God, which the Israelites were commanded to keep. And in addition to that, they built a fence around those of extra biblical laws. And that's what Jesus is saying. They made it impossible for these people to... To, to to follow it. The Pharisee, the word Pharisee comes from Perushim. And what does it mean? It means separated ones. Separated ones. And a lot of times people are pharisaical, they want to appear separated. They want to appear ultra holy, more holy than somebody else. The cults are notorious for demands that they put on their followers. So be on guard. It can come from within the camp as well. You can have another Christian put demands on you that are not biblical. Now, remember this. People never come into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ without some extra biblical baggage which they bring into that relationship. And that baggage can come from many different sources. First of all, the cultural, the culture around us. Imagine, you know, a young person coming to Christ now in this culture in which we live. If you grew up in India, for instance, and you became a Christian, you would be faced with the question, what do I do with meat? I haven't haven't eaten meat my whole life. The same is true for certain Jewish dietary restrictions. What about Jews who get saved? Do they have to keep the Jewish feast days? No. Do they have to worship on Saturday? No. The same with Seventh-day Adventists. What did Paul say? 1 Timothy 4.1 The Spirit speaks expressly that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. So they try to impose extra-biblical things on people. Another source of baggage we bring into our Christian life can be the people who influence us. Sometimes, you know, you become a Christian and there are other Christians who, you know, you're going to hang out with in church or wherever, or maybe it's the pastor. And, and, but in the past, you had people influence you, right? For good or for, for bad. Sometimes you come into the Christian life, you don't want to disappoint people that, that you knew in the past. So you don't do certain things in order to please them. Then you have your own personal beliefs and convictions, which were not biblical before they were saved. I mean, you may have agreed with certain things that were in the, in, but you really didn't know how to word of God, know the word of God enough to have a fully developed conscience and and know what the word of God is teaching and and uh, what it's allowing and what it's prohibiting. Then there are all kinds of non-biblical traditions and teachings that people bring into their Christian life. The Sabbath-keeping, the dietary laws, the legalism of the Seventh day Adventists would fit into that category. And people ask me, do you think they're they're Christians? I think they're Christians among the seventh-day Adventists, but I think if you really look at the seventh-day Adventist teachings, no, it's not a Christian. It's not Christian at all. It's a false gospel of an investigative judgment and so forth, and I can spend times on this. They believe if you worship on Sunday, you know, you receive the mark of the beast. So that non-biblical traditions and teachings. But here's the big one. Here's, the, here's what we have to be really careful. Our lack of proper biblical hermeneutics. When you became a Christian, you got saved. Prior to this, you did not know how to interpret the Bible. And a lot of Christians don't know how to interpret the Bible. And that's why they get into all kinds of trouble. Hermeneutics is the the method of interpreting the Bible. Some call it the science of Bible interpretation. There are rules that govern our interpretation of the Scripture. If you don't follow them, you get in trouble. The perfect example of this from my own life, and it would be something that caused quite a bit of trouble here in this church, would be the teachings of Bill Gothard. Does anyone remember Bill Gothard? Does anyone know Bill Gothard? You young people don't. But back in the 70s, 60s, when rock and roll hit America and drugs hit America and long hair, Bill Gothard stood up and started holding seminars to, to warn parents about these dangers and, and, and what to do, how to instruct their children. And you go to the seminar and you get a massive big red book. I had one for a while. Somebody gave it to me. I didn't buy it. And it was filled with all kind of information for you. So... <laughs> He started homeschooling young people and families with his Advanced Training Institute of America, ATIA Materials. The young adults called it American Teenagers in Agony. <laughs> it's a scandal-ridden organization. Don Venant, a friend of mine, he wrote a book called The Matter of Basic Principles, Bill Gothard and the Christian Life. And he influenced thousands of people. He influenced pastor after pastor after pastor. This is how it goes. So he met with him and he says, one of the issues we addressed in meetings with Bill Gothard was his teaching on dietary restrictions. Wait a minute. (laughs) Paul says, don't let anybody judge you in food and drink and feast days and all that stuff. It should be immediately settled, right? No, he says, in Gothard's world, there was no eating of pork or shellfish. And people must also bake God's bread God's way. Now, you women, you don't know that, right? Did you know that you must bake God's bread God's way? Gothard even included God's alleged recipe for making the right bread. That makes life simple, right? No doubt he's referring to Ezekiel's bread, which you can go to Sprouts and buy, right? Listen, I've said this before. Ezekiel's bread wasn't a recipe for bread that you can enjoy. It was a curse. It was a judgment on the people that they would have to eat that kind of a bread. What happened? He abandoned historical grammatical context and he went in search of Bible passages that supported or could be distorted, seemingly, to support his ideas. Uh, friend, another, you know, oh, Don Vino, same way, in, in Midwest Christian Outreach, he wrote an article this month called uh, The Diet of Jesus. You know, and that was kind of interesting, because he referred to Gothard and this, and, and Gwen Chamblin, the Way Down Diet, everybody has their diets and stuff. But there, there's a fellow out there teaching, now, you know, what, what did Jesus eat? Well, I know some things he ate. I certainly don't know everything that he ate. But he was trying to prove in his writings now that Jesus was a vegetarianism. That he only ate vegetables. Now, if you only eat vegetables, fine. But I have news for you. Jesus was not a vegetarian. You say, how do you know? He ate lamb. At Passover, he ate lamb. And that was real lamb. He ate fish. Probably lots of fish. And so forth. So Gothard's material was replete with a form of Christian legalism. But he is not alone. Fred Malone, who we quoted earlier, says, modern day issues concerning Christian liberty including, include alcoholic drinking, and I'm not advocating that, women's dress, pants, length of dress, education of children, Must you homeschool them? Even insurance. Should Christians have insurance? Women's-based head coverings, contraception, use of TV, internet, electronics, music choices, Sunday school, youth camps, political views to which I would add length of hair, tattoos, nose rings, earrings on men. The list is almost endless. Now, there is no question that Scripture must be the final determiner of those choices for the believer. We would all agree with that, right? And there are principles to follow in the Scripture that I believe would lead you to the, the right applications in your own life and use of those things or non-use of those things. But the problem of liberty arises when man-made rules and opinions go beyond Scripture. And they take on the role of law in a church for church membership, for church discipline, and church unity. And they begin to disrupt church unity. And again, re- I remind you, I have expectations. I have standards in my life. You have them in your life. As a parent, you have them for your children. Those are good. And you know, your, your home rules may, may be a little bit more legalistic because you, you, you've got you've to control these little rebels, you know, that's part of parenting. And it's just knowing knowing what to do sometimes. But here's what he said, Malone. The the fundamentalist movement of the last one hundred and fifty years has brought confusion about this doctrine to the church, often creating division over strongly held opinions. I remember one man, he almost fell apart when he found out that that I played solitaire with a deck of cards. True. You play cards? Yeah, what's, I mean, this was young. Well, what's wrong with cards? No, Christians can't play cards. All right, dance. You know, I mean, right on down the list back then, those days. You think you have it tough. But he said, the fundamentalist movement of the last 150 years has brought confusion about this doctrine to the church, often creating division over strongly held opinions or else dominating the conscience of Christians with false guilt. Pride often has been outworking of this movement simply because Emphasis upon outward behavior has created a watchful eye, a critical spirit, and much self righteousness for holding to certain behaviors. I'm I can I'm now in no position to tell you what you must do with all of your time, your free time. Should you have a television? Should you not have a television? Should you watch this movie? Should you not watch this movie? Must you come to five services a week? six services a week, and do everything that, that, I, that I would like to do or you know, require you to do or some other group, go out, pass out tracts, do whatever it is, that becomes burdensome, very burdensome. So we have to be careful. Here's Sam Storms. Are you a legalist? Just kind of examine your own conscience here. Are you a legalist? Maybe headed in that. Do you place a higher value on church customs than on biblical principles? Just because a church does something doesn't mean it's, it's, it's right for every church to do that thing. So number two, do you elevate to the status of moral law something the Bible does not require? In other words, you, you look at someone and, and you know oh, he, he, he must be in sin or he's what... You've elevated something that's not biblical to, to, to an equality with the scripture. Number three, Do you tend to look down your spiritual nose at those who don't follow God's will for your life? Number four, are you more comfortable with the fact that the Bible does not explicitly address every ethical decision or answer every theological question? I wish it did, right? But it doesn't. And number five, are you more comfortable with rules than relationships? Listen, what's parenting all about? It is a relationship. If it's all about rules and rules and rules and rules, and you don't bond with your child, and you don't create a loving, godly relationship with that child, no amount of the rules in the world are going to do them any good. They're going to eventually become bitter. They're going to test their own waters and so forth. You have to be real careful. Rules. Rules are important but they have to be put in the proper context in place. Jesus developed relationships with his disciples, personal relationships with them. Okay, so let's move on now. Enough of that. License in the church. Now, here's the the issue, okay? You young people, you you 50 and under maybe, you don't have a problem with legalism, right? Your problem is the other end of the spectrum license right now listen we are all born legalists right you weren't born saved you were born with the orientation in you that you had to do certain things to please god and so forth and so on to obtain salvation however any one of us can go beyond the scripture in trying to please god or appear more sanctified than another christian So there is great cause for rejoicing in knowing the doctrine of Christian liberty. It's a precious truth. But there's also a danger to it. John 8.31, Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, If you continue in my word, then you are my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you what? Free. Listen, I could cry almost every time I hear this verse. Because I've told you the story many times. I was a lost, lost, wandering soul looking at every kind of religion you can look at. And I ended up in a, in a classroom at Wilkes College at night, which was a former church building. I was ready to go to some indoctrination for some cultic thing, you know, mind, mind science type of thing or whatever it was, Eastern religion. And I looked up on the wall. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That verse, that verse changed my life. And he says in verse 36 of John 8, if you therefore, if the Son therefore shall make you free, you will be free indeed. And listen, when I came to faith in Jesus Christ, nobody can put me in a, to, to spiritual handcuffs again or bondage under the law, under this, do this, do. I was free. And I have been free ever since. Free ever since. But the danger of Christian liberty is using our liberty as a license to what? Sin. To sin. That's what Paul said in Romans 6. What do we say? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we who are dead to sin, right, live any longer therein? Romans thirteen fourteen. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And make no provision for the flesh to fulfill the lusts thereof. You're going to have certain bents toward certain things when you get saved. You're going to develop more as you get older and older. And some things are going to be just stumbling stones for you that may not be stumbling stones for me or another Christian. I could remember when a friend of mine got saved, he was a bodybuilder, you know, just all about muscles. And he came to me, he says, Pastor Tom, I'm convinced it's wrong for any Christian to lift weights. And I said, well, where do you get that from? <laughs> it's not in the Bible. He got it because what? That was a problem for him. And you can apply that to many, many different areas of a person's life. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fool the lusts thereof. You know, if you're passing a bakery shop every day to to work and and you're on a diet, you might change your route, right? You might keep certain things out of the refrigerator, right? So here's a quote for you, okay? Christian liberty is not a license to do as we wish. That's an abuse of Christian liberty. But the power to do as we ought through the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. It's not giving you freedom. Christ sets you free to do whatever you want, young people. But God gives you through the Holy Spirit the power to do what you should be doing. So just as you must be on guard with legalism, you must be on guard with your liberty that it does not become a license to sin. Sin will always be dangerous and destructive in your life. The smallest of sins can put you on a slippery slope if it's not dealt with. I'm going to give you some examples and I'll give you the scriptures with them. Sin can put you into bad company. Psalm what? Blessed is the man who uh, Walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. So forth and so on. Sin can easily put you into bad company. Bad company can put you into sin, too. That's from Psalm 1. Sin breaks fellowship with God. 1 John 1. Sin invites God's discipline in your life. Hebrews chapter 12, find the verses. Sin, sin hinders prayer, Isaiah 59, 2. God says. My hand is not shortened that I cannot save. My ear is not deaf that I cannot hear. But your sins have separated you from me, and I will not hear. So it breaks fellowship with God, invites God's discipline, it hinders prayer. And then this sin can have consequences in your life that you may not be able to change. That's really significant. I remember, or what is it, 2 Peter 2.8, where, where Peter says Lot, and I like the King James word, he, he vexed his soul. He was tormented in his soul every day because of the ungodly company of people in Sodom. Well, who chose Sodom? Who chose Sodom? Lot. So you can make choices that you can't change. Young people, I can give you a long list of, of Christians young men and women who have done that and lived a life with regrets. 1 Corinthians 6.12, sin can lead to a, a life-dominating destructive addiction. That's the danger of alcohol. Whatever, whatever else it is. Some things are very just, they're, they're highly addictive. Paul says he wouldn't be brought under the power of any. He not 1 Corinthians 6.12, don't let sin have mastery over you control over you so what then is the proper motivating factor for a christian to walk in liberty without falling into sin well if we love god it should be our desire to do the things that please him john jesus said in john fourteen fifteen, if you love me what keep my commandments pretty simple right now we're not going to keep them perfectly we're not going to keep them perfectly but the point is we have to keep short accounts with god because we desire fellowship with him First John 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confess means to say the same thing, homo legato say the same thing. So you agree with God that what you did is wrong, and you feel that conviction of the Holy Spirit of God, and your desire is to make it right and restore that fellowship with God. Right? Powerful factor in keeping us from misusing our liberty is serving others. We don't often think about this, but Paul said in Galatians 5.13, Brethren, you've been called to liberty. Remember the context, Galatians. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, Romans 6.1 and 2. But by love, what? Serve one another. Serve one another. When faced with Christians who who differ on things, in Romans Paul. Romans fourteen, which we'll get to, Paul says in verse nineteen, Romans fourteen. Let us therefore follow after the things which make for peace, and things wherewith one we may edify one another. Don't don't, don't fight over this, that, and the other thing. Serve people. Now, I've seen this over and over again. If you're doing things that you should be doing. Like like your schooling, your job, your responsibilities as a mother and father. If you're doing your daily responsibilities and, and you're serving the Lord in addition, and, and, and you're finding time, a little bit of time it seems, for some good recreation, things that you enjoy doing, things that you enjoy doing with your family, But if you, as the head of the family, if you're doing those things, you don't have a whole lot of time to get in trouble. Right? You'd almost have to find time to do that. Which you don't want to do. It was a 12th century saying, that idle hands are what? The devil's workshop. It's not in the Bible. And then lastly, this. Things you may be permitted to do are not always the right thing to do, right? 1 Corinthians 10, 23. Paul thinks, all things are permitted, but not all things are of benefit. Now, let's pause right there for a moment. Paul is not saying you can go do anything you want to do because that would contradict a whole lot of other scriptures that he taught where you couldn't do that. But what he is saying, all things are lawful, which, the God, which God permits, Right? I don't have to bake bread God's way according to Bill Gothard I can eat shellfish I can eat pork but not all all things are beneficial all things are permitted if God permits them but all things do not build up they're not going to edify you so you may watch some television but be careful Right? Be discriminating. Be discriminating. Same thing with movies or whatever else it is. It may not edify you. It may bring you down. It may put you into a bad state spiritually. No one is to seek his own advantage. Here's the key. But but rather that of his neighbor. And that ties in with the previous point about serving others. That's what love does. So if I'm going to have a uh, a person, maybe a man comes out of Judaism and he gets saved and, and I'm going to, you know, meet with him. I'm going to be careful, right? I'm not going to eat a pork dinner in front of him. I'm not, I'm not going to do anything, and we'll see this in 1 Corinthians, that would cause another brother deliberately to stumble. So we'll talk about how to use your liberty properly in Romans chapter 14. So I just want to close with this. The law of Moses called for strict obedience but did not in itself provide the power to obey. And therein is the problem. Legalism does not work. Right? The salvation legalists, it never works. You may try and try and try and it's never enough, never enough and you can't do because there's no power source. Once a person get saved, he or she, they have new desires, and they have a new power by God the Holy Spirit to live lives that are pleasing to him. And this should be our goal. And the person that you must be most concerned about is not me, not someone else in the church. There's a place when you go to a sinning brother, you know, to to try to keep him from messing up his life even further. But the person that you must be most concerned about is who? You. Me. Am I living a life that's pleasing to God? And I pray that that would be our aim every day. Not only this year, but for the rest of our life.